All right, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So some years ago, uh, Carrie and I, we were living in another city and I was pastoring another church. Well, I got this message in the mail, this letter in the mail, inviting me uh, to a pastor and wife retreat in San Antonio, sponsored by the Baptist General Convention of Texas. And it said, are you interested? It's free of charge. It's on the Riverwalk. Are you interested? Now, I didn't fall off the turnip truck yesterday, so I thought, well, there's going to be a sales pitch involved. Nothing, there's no such thing as free. We'll go there and maybe they'll show us a good time, but they'll also have a time where they set us aside and say, okay, we need you to support this or we need you to donate to this, you know, and so I thought, okay, I'm willing to take the bullet. We, my, Carrie and I didn't have much money back then, but, you know, we sure couldn't have afforded a hotel on the Riverwalk. I thought, it'll be worth it if I have to sit through a three or four hour an uncomfortable pitch to give her that. So we went. And we get there the first night, and they have this big banquet. And I thought, okay, they're going to hit us with it right at the beginning. They, they announced the speaker, and it was the president of one of the Texas Baptist colleges. And I thought, well, it's going to be him. And he got up, and he just told funny stories. It was a real entertaining speaker, gave us all copies of his book for free, and you know, sent us back to our hotel room, said, have a good night's sleep. So the next day, we get up, and we come to the to the banquet room or the, the meeting room, and they said, okay, we're separating the wives and the husbands. Wives are going to go over here, and husbands, you're going to stay here. And I thought, okay, now this is what it is. They're going get, to get the wives all distracted, and they get all, us pastors all in one room where they can really hit us hard. But no, they, I don't even remember what Carrie and the rest of the wives did, but they just let us sit around and talk to one another about what it was like at our church and what we were struggling with and what we needed prayer for, and it was really nice. So after lunch, they said, go home, get a nap. We're going to give you a date night tonight. I thought, okay, what's the catch? So we show up at five o'clock and they hand us each a $50 bill and they said, take your wife out on the river walk, have a good time. Now, this is long enough ago that you could go to dinner and a movie with $50, so we had a really good time. And so that's the second night. Thing was ending the next day after breakfast. So I thought, okay, they've really been nice to us. So this sales pitch is even gonna be worse than I thought. It, they're really gonna get us and when I showed up for breakfast, sure enough, the president of the state convention was there. And I thought, oh, good grief. Now it comes. No. He just said, y'all join hands. I want to pray for you. He prayed for us. It was over. Good, goodbye. God bless. And I asked somebody, where did all this come from? What, what, what organization? Did, and they said, this isn't, don't worry, sir. This isn't cooperative program dollars. A layman who wants to be anonymous donated money to the convention and said, I just want to bless pastors. And the best way I can do that, I can think to do that, is give them and their wives some time away, and that's what it was for, free of charge. Now, I'm not typically a cynical person, so I was kind of surprised at how surprised I was at that. We just don't see that kind of generosity usually. You know, I'll meet that guy in heaven and figure out who he is someday, and I'll thank him for it because I needed it at the time. But we're not used to that kind of generosity. Even spectacularly generous people in our world typically tend to have some strings attached, right? I'll give this money, but you better name this after me, right? I'll give this money, but I want to be able to call the shots. I, I want to be able to, to uh, be a stakeholder who, who makes some decisions. But that's not generosity. That's not biblical generosity. Biblical generosity is what I encountered in San Antonio. It's giving without expecting thanks, recognition, or any strings. And I say all that because chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians is all about generosity. 
Paul is writing to the Corinthians about an offering that he is in the middle of collecting for the Jerusalem church. Remember, the Christian movement got its start in Jerusalem with the empty tomb and then the upper room, Pentecost. And so that was the mama church of the whole uh, shebang. But now the church was becoming more and more Gentile. And meanwhile, those Jerusalem Christians were under a lot of pressure, more pressure than the Gentile Christians at this point in history. And they were struggling. And Paul, as a Jewish Christian, his dream in life was, number one, that he would plant churches all over the Mediterranean and see thousands come to Christ. But number two, that there would be a way to bridge that Jewish-Gentile divide. That someday there wouldn't be tension between people just because of their race. And so he thought one way of doing that perhaps is if I get this big collection from Gentile Christians and they show up in Jerusalem with all this money to bless them and all those families that don't have income and, and all the needs of the church and with no strings attached, won't that change the dynamic between Jew and Gentile? And so he had worked really hard to gather. And over a year before, according to verse 10, over a year before, the Corinthian church had said, yeah, we'll be a part of that. But they hadn't come through yet. Now we know Paul. We know that Paul can, uh, as, as my mom used to say, he'll get your britches if you're not careful, right? You know, he's, he was somebody who wasn't afraid to say harsh things. He wasn't afraid to be direct. But he also wanted to be delicate with this church because he was trying to reestablish a, a good relationship. So watch the way he motivates their giving here. And as you, as you read it, you'll see ways to motivate ourselves to be generous. So the first one in verses 1 through 5, he motivates by using the example of other Christians. Verse 1, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So he's not trying to shame the Corinthians, but he is trying to say, I want you to know how blessed I've been that your brothers and sisters in Macedonia. Now, who does that include? We know it includes Thessalonica, Berea, and Philippi. And if you've ever read the letter to the Philippians, and I think you all have, you know that that was a church that showed generosity to Paul on one, more than one occasion. Paul's point is they didn't give because they had a surplus. That's the way a lot of us are. Man, God's been good to me. I'm going to give some of the overflow of what I've been given, which is admirable. But no, they gave out of their poverty. They gave beyond their means, as he says. And they gave generously without even being asked. He says, of their own accord. And they did more than just give financially. It says they gave themselves first to the Lord. We don't know exactly what that means, but Paul says, you know, there is a tendency among people sometimes to say, well, I can't really help, but I'll give instead. They did more than just give financially. They gave of themselves to the Lord. And I, when I think about the example of giving, uh, you can all probably think of generous people that you've known, people who've been kind to you when you were down on your luck. My own grandfather, I, I, I know I've told y'all before, was a dairy farmer. Uh, to, to his dying day, he always shopped at, at one feed store in town. Why? Because there was a period of time when he couldn't pay his bill and they floated him along. It was like, uh, they were good to me. I'm going to be loyal to them. 
Um, and we're, we understand, we know what it's like to be helped when we're, in, we're, when we're struggling. But I also think about this church. This, you know, I, I come to this church uh, five years ago when the church was 125 years old. So there's a lot of history that happened before I ever got here, before I was even born. And I think about the people who gave to build that sanctuary. I think about the people who gave to build this atrium. I want y'all to know when friends come to visit me here and they say, hey, show me your church, I always take them to the atrium and say, this is, this is my favorite part. Because I've never been in a church that has an area like that where everybody can gather. And uh, I'm just grateful for the men and women who had the vision to do that and who gave to it. I think about the churches in our community and around here that were planted by this church. You know, Oak Ridge Baptist was planted by this church. Uh, under over, the building we're under over fellowship meets. That, that church building housed a church mission of this church and, and many others that, that I could name. That was done because people were generous. There are a lot of other examples I could give, but when you think about those things, remember we're, we're sort of uh, benefiting from the generosity of others, some of whom are in heaven, some of whom are still with us. So we need to do our part. Second thing, second reason to give is because that's a sign of true Christianity. That's a sign of Christian character. Verse 6, he says, Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So in verse 6, when he's mentioning Titus, remember Titus is his young friend who is sort of the go-between between Paul and Corinth. And he's saying, okay, Titus is going to be there with you soon. We're urging him to take up a collection when he gets there. And then that's when he says, you excel in all this other stuff. Now excel in generosity too. And you could read that as Paul just buttering them up, but I don't think he's being insincere because that would not be uh, of the Holy Spirit. So one thing I take from that verse is you and I can very easily justify being stingy by saying, well, I don't give much, but I do these other things instead. I, I heard about a pastor who uh, somebody asked, a fellow pastor asked him if he tithed to his own church and said, no, but they don't pay me what, I, what I'm worth, so my extra effort is my tithe. No, it's not. That's not the way the Lord looks at it. Um, so we can do that. We can, we can say to ourselves, well, I'm not a very generous person, but I pray. I, I don't give financially, but I, if somebody needs help fixing their house, I'll be glad to be there in a minute. Uh, so... So generosity, financial generosity, is an aspect of Christian character. It can't be divorced from the rest of Christian character. And this is a good place to answer an important question. Uh, I've, I was raised in such a way, I was taught as a lifelong Baptist, that you, were, you give 10% of everything you make to your church. Now, if you want to be generous to other causes on top of that, that's great but you do that over and above your 10% that you give to your church. Now, is that biblical? I have to admit, although I'd love to say as a pastor, that is the only way you can give. I can't, I can't make that statement biblically. You know, if I ran into, this hadn't happened, but if I ran into somebody who took 10% of their income and just went around giving it to people in need, I couldn't tell them you're, you're uh, subverting the will of God. I will say this though. 
I think it's good advice to give your first 10% to your local church. Because, number one, that is still the institution through which God accomplishes his work on earth. It doesn't mean he doesn't do things through non-church organizations and individuals, but it, that's everything I read in Scripture says that's, that's, how God, that's what God is using to change the world for Christ. Number two, while it sounds good to us, and while it's very motivating to say, I'm going to give this 10% to things I believe in, to causes I agree with, that can lead to a, an egotism. You know, it's not far from there to... I'm going to give 10%. I'm going to give out of my 10% to uh, my church, but I'm going to tell them you've got to, be, got to put up a statue of my dad, right? Or I'm going to give to this particular cause because I think that's important. Well, that's fine, but it's good to give some money that you don't get to call the shots on. I think it's good for our humility. Now, as in a Baptist church, you still get a vote on how that's used, but I can almost promise you there will be some decisions your local church makes that aren't necessarily the decision you would have made if it was just up to you. And I think it's good for our humility, for our character to say, I'm going to contribute even if I'm not in charge. Uh, so that's my opinion as a pastor. You can take it for what it's worth. Um, number three, another reason to give, and this is the key uh, point in this chapter, because generosity follows the example of Jesus. Verse 8, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Again, notice how delicate Paul is being. He's treading lightly, because there are plenty of other places where he commands. But look what he says next, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's, that's one of the most beautiful one-sentence statements in the Bible or anywhere in literature. And it's such a great one-sentence statement of the incarnation of Christ, which is one of the great miracles of all time. And it's not just that God became human, which is amazing. It's that He was willing to do that. Why? Why on earth would He do it? It must mean he loves us more than is rational to do. I, I've often wondered, and maybe I'm not right about this, maybe angels just unquestioningly obey the Father, but I've always wondered if the angels in heaven were confused at the incarnation and thought, what, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you going there? Why are you becoming one of them? And he came, and he lived among us, and he died for us on that cross. And that's what this is about. You know, think about the drop in status for Jesus when he was born in Bethlehem. Just the fact that he was becoming a human at all was an incredible drop in status. For the first time, he could feel pain. For the first time, he was weak. For the first time, uh, he had all these problems that he would be faced with. And he didn't just become human. He became among the poorest of humans. I think about how when we go on mission trips... We don't necessarily live the way the people live in the place where we go on the mission trip. Maybe you have, but when I've gone on mission trips, if I've got a choice between, okay, you're going to live in a mud hut with the people you're going to tell the Bible stories to, or you're going to stay in the guest room of the missionary's house. Well, I'll stay with the missionary. That, that's okay. Yeah, I, I need a good night's sleep. Jesus, Jesus came, uh, and he didn't, he, you know, becoming a human, he didn't become a king. He didn't become a scholar. He didn't become a wealthy person. He became a peasant, a blue-collar man. 
and then became even poorer than that. And it wasn't just for show. He traded his riches for our poverty, and we got his riches in exchange for our poverty. And, and think about that statement, that we might become rich. Again, that's, I think you all know this. That isn't a promise that, it, that we're all going to be financially wealthy. Although I will say, by the standards of this world, you know, most of the average citizen of planet Earth, everybody in this room is pretty wealthy. But it doesn't mean you'll be wealthy compared to your next door neighbor or the person you see on TV in terms of dollars. But think about what we have because of what Christ did for us. He didn't die so that we would have a certain number in the bank account. He died so that we would have righteous status before the Father, so that we'd be forgiven forever, so that we would have hope of eternal life, so that we would be freed from our sins. And every day we walk with Him, we're more like Him. I mean, there's just so many things we could list and, and mention about what salvation looks like, and all of those things make even the financially poorest Christian you can name one of the richest people on earth. So that all came because of what Jesus gave up for us. That kind of generosity should motivate us to give. Not because He's going to take it back if we don't, but we ought to be ashamed to stand before Him someday and say, thank you for saving me. I kept everything to myself. Right? Remember that song, some of you probably grew up singing, Will There Be Any Stars, Any Stars in My Crown, right? I mean, you, you want to stand before the Lord and say, okay, it doesn't earn anything, but here's what I did in thanks for what you did for me. Number four, we may think we don't have much to give, but God loves it when we give what we can. So verse 10 says, and in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. You see that phrase? For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, if you're sitting there, Corinthians, and saying to yourselves, we'll do this when things are better for us. Right now we're going through a dry season and nobody in this church has much money, so we'd be embarrassed about the collection we could take up now. Just call us back in a few months. Maybe, maybe things will be better after the harvest. Paul's saying, God, God's not worried about the size of your offering. That's something we need to remember. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. If he needs money, he doesn't need it from us, right? If God wants to resource a particular ministry or help a particular person, he's not sitting there saying, boy, I sure hope First Baptist comes through for me because things are getting a little tight in the bank of heaven. That doesn't happen. So it's not about the amount we're able to give. It's are we giving what we're able that pleases the Lord? We give not because God needs our giving, but because we need to give. And, and, you know, the classic story is of the widow who gave those two little copper coins in the, in the temple the week before uh, crucifixion. And Jesus saw that and said she's given more than all these wealthy people who are tossing in these large sums. Uh, you know, it's just a, a reminder that our giving is really for us. It's not for God. The th then number five. When you have needs, here's another reason to be generous. When you have needs, you'll want others to be generous. And they're more likely to be generous to you if you've been generous to them. He, does, he says it this way, verse 13. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. 
So I think that's what he's saying. Right now, Jerusalem is down on their luck. Help them out. Someday you may be down on your luck and you'll want them to be generous to you. And that may sound like kind of a mercenary motive, but Jesus tells a whole parable about that. The parable of the, the unrighteous steward or manager. Uh, he's, it's one of the more unusual parables in the Gospels. Uh, the guy works, a guy works managing the money of, of a wealthy man and uh, his boss fires him. But before he's out the door, he goes to all this guy's debtors and cuts their bills in half. And that way, once he's out on the street, those people are going to be so grateful, they're going to welcome him in. And Jesus is not saying, be crooked like that man. What he's saying is, even crooked people understand that if you're kind to other people, they'll be kind to you. So why don't godly people understand that? You see, be generous and you'll find that people are going to be generous to you. There are, there are plenty of motivations for generosity. And then here's uh, number six. God has provided plenty for all of us. There's this idea, this false idea, that there's a limited amount of money in the world. So if, if I give this up, it may never come back. And that's just not the way it works. Verse 15, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. What is he quoting there? He's quoting the book of Exodus. In fact, he's quoting something we're going to read about this next week, when God gave manna to the Israelites. So when God first gave manna to the children of Israel in the desert, he said, listen, there's plenty for everybody, so don't hoard it. You don't need to save any for tomorrow because there will be more tomorrow. And some of them didn't listen. They went home, they gathered as much as they could, and they went home, and they kept some back just in case there was none tomorrow. And when they got up, it was all maggoty and rotten. And God said, just listen to me. I'll provide for you. Just trust. So everybody in that, of those two million or so Israelites, there was enough food for everybody because God's storehouses are always full. His point is, you're not going to outgive me, which is the old cliche we hear from generous people. I've got another story uh, in that regard. Um, years ago, uh, I had a friend who was a young black pastor, and he was uh, dedicating a new building. And he invited all the pastors in the area to come to the service of dedication. And I went, and that's when I discovered uh, how long services are in black churches. But uh, it was a real interesting service in a lot of ways. But one of the things that I've never forgotten is one, of, one pastor got up to pray over the offering. And he got up and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I got good news and bad news. The good news is the Lord's already provided all the money to pay off the debt on this building. And everybody said, amen. And he said, the bad news is it's still in your pockets. <laughs> I thought, that's pretty good. I'll have to use that someday. But, you know, God has provided. It's just, are we going to be able to be, are we going to be willing to be generous? And then that's his motivation to give. Now he gets into some logistical details, which you might say, well, why do we care? But let's read this passage and I will tell you why this is important. Verse 16 through the end of the chapter. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. 
We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So in the one sense, this sounds like the typical ancient, here are the people I'm sending you, I recommend them to you, show them hospitality. But notice he's saying, I'm sending you Titus, and I'm also sending you these two other people. He doesn't name them. And, and honestly, if you read commentaries, you find that's, that's caused all kinds of you know, controversy and, oh, I think it was Apollos and I think it was Aristarchus. And honestly, it doesn't matter. We don't know why Paul doesn't name who these two other fellows are. It doesn't matter. The question I want to ask you is, the first time Titus went by himself, why does Paul now feel the need to send two people with him? Well, he tells us in verse 20, so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being ministered by us for we aim as what is honorable in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. What is he saying? He's saying, this time Titus is going to take up a collection and I don't want to leave him exposed. I don't want anybody in your church or anybody in Jerusalem to be able to say, I bet Titus stopped halfway back and spent some of that money on himself. This way there's, there's two other witnesses and there's accountability. And, and the point I want to make is there is always a need for accountability among Christians. Uh, that is important. Nobody is above that. Not the pastor, not the chairman of the deacons, not the, the most seasoned saint in the church. Uh, if if a, a woman other than my wife comes to my office, this thankfully hasn't happened since I've been at this church, but it's happened at other church churches, or I'm all by myself, I don't sit there in my office with her. I, we go outside and sit where other people can see us. Um, when Somebody wants to hand me money for the church. I go directly to, I hate that by the way, but I'm not going to tell them they can't give. I go directly to Lisa and say, here, get this money out of my hands. I mean, you need, there needs to be accountability in all things. We have, ordinarily tonight would be our finance committee meeting, but we postpone it till next week because of the chance of weather. But I thank God, even though I hate meetings with every fiber of my being, I thank God that once a month there's this group of men and women who take a look at the finances of the church and who are an extra set of eyes. This, I know, I know I, I'm going off on a tangent here, but my uncle was pastor of a church in North, North Texas. Um, family came to him once and asked him to do a wedding on the spur of the moment. He did. They said, well, we got a little something for you. He said, well, just write the check to the church. And they said, well, we'll just write it to you. He said, no, write it to the church. And they said, what's the difference? Well, there is a difference. Uh, there, there must be a difference. Uh, there's got to be accountability. Everything must be done in an above board way, even though a lot of the people I'm mentioning would never, would never want to do anything uh, in, in, a, in a way that lacks integrity, and yet all of us are capable of it. And all of us, even people who are full of integrity, are capable of being accused by others. So there's, everything has to be done in an above-board way. Now, let me make this clear. When he says, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man, this is a common theme in Scripture. It talks about 
they had great favor in the sight of the neighbors or the community, uh, things like that. There are often references to that. And you've got to balance that out with the parts of the Bible that say that the world will hate you like it hated our Lord. So what does that mean? Where do you come down with that? Here's where I come down with that. We shouldn't base our decisions on our own reputation. We shouldn't worry about or be motivated by a desire to impress others. We shouldn't worry about what others think of us. But we should be very concerned about what other people think of Christ because of us. You know, as somebody who I've been very open with you, I was just... Uh, that's my idolatry that I battle, this idol of approval and and trying to seek the approval of others. That's how I I discern my own motives. Am I concerned about this because I want people to like me and approve of me? Or am I concerned about this because I want them to know Christ? And that's how I know whether I'm on the right track or not. Uh, This is, this life is not always, you know, following Christ isn't always easy but it's always, it always leads to a great reward and generosity for the Lord's sake was something you'll never regret. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you, being rich, became poor for our sakes, and we are all rich out of your poverty. And I pray, Lord, that you would show us opportunities and ways to be generous to others uh, through the church and through other means. Thank you, Lord, for the many, many people who've been more than generous to me over and above what I could ask or expect. And I pray that I would be the same. For it's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.